This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday, so subscribe now to make sure you don't miss them. Now, we've covered a lot of castles on the podcast and today we're focusing our attention on two more, both of which are in Suffolk in East Anglia. Framlingham Castle has a rich and varied history. It was a medieval duchess's retreat, the centre from which Mary Tudor launched her claim to be queen, and a 17th century workhouse. Orford Castle, meanwhile, has been used as a royal retreat, a prison for a legendary wild man, and even as a Second World War radar station. But it's their early histories, not long after the Norman Conquest, as venues of power, prestige and political machinations that we're looking at today. Joining us to talk through this tale of two castles is Head Properties Curator, Dr Jeremy Ashby. Hello Charles, lovely to be with you again. Okay Jeremy, let's set the scene. Two castles, five kings, feuding families, occupation and overthrow, rebellion, spilled blood and bragging rights. It's all a bit Game of Thrones, isn't it? Yes, that's, I think, exactly the way of looking at it. And apart from the fact that it hasn't got any dragons, other than that, this is pretty similar stuff. It's a story of powerful men, and by and large, I'm afraid in this instance, it is mostly men rather than women, using violence and cunning for their political and military advantage. We've uh, already mentioned that we'll be talking about Framlingham and Orford Castles, the latter of which comes into the story later. But let's start with Framlingham, or Fram as I know locals like to call this, Mm -hmm. and the Bygods, who were heavily associated with the structure. Who were they, and when does this particular story begin? Well, the story we're going to be talking about is mostly in in the 12th century, so it's actually the century after the Norman Conquest of 1066, but they are very much a part of that story too. They've been there since the very beginning. I do have to pick you up a little bit about pronunciation, and while I wasn't there in the 11th and 12th centuries, I think you should pronounce it bigod. Or, bigod, or, oh, okay. Or, or something like that. That's what I tend to say. We're not certain about it. The etymology of it's slightly weird, but I think it may actually have a meaning that's not a million miles away from something like the modern word bigot, Not a holder of strong and uncompromising opinions, but a boor, an uncouth person, or even a yob. And what's quite clear is that in the Middle Ages, the pun on by God was something that was quite current. There's a very famous story about the family, sadly from a a generation or two after what we're going to be talking about, where one of the members of the family is arguing with the king, King Edward I, who's trying to get him to go to war on the king's behalf in Gascony. And Edward I says to him, Sir Earl Bigod, you will go or hang. And Sir Earl Bigod goes, By God, Lord King, I will not. Which is a joke that only really works in Old English. So I'm saying at the moment, Bigod, but it really could be anything. Okay. You asked where, where they've come from. Yes. Um, they are a family that's got deep roots. In Normandy, before the conquest, they weren't in the first rank of families. That They're fairly low down the pecking order. But they do come over in the aftermath of the, the conquest, and they do very well in England. So within the first generation of a chap called Roger Bigod, Roger the First Bigod, 
who dies in 1107. Before his death, he's got the post of Sheriff of Norfolk, which is a very, very important royal official looking after, on the king's behalf, the whole of East Anglia. Wow. So they're immigrants, effectively, but they're also sort of pioneers and sort of um, entrepreneurs. I think they're people with energy and ambition and drive. And actually, they're probably there's something quite deep about the Norman conquest about that, that people even from relatively lowly backgrounds with an eye to the main chance could do well in Norman England. And the big odd family are, are one of them, clearly they can see that there are opportunities to be made, particularly in East Anglia. So, for example, in 1086, when the Doomsday Survey is being carried out, they're in charge of Framlingham, although they're technically as a tenant to someone else that's more important. But as time goes on, they get to be in charge in their own right. And it's Roger the First Bigod, dying in 1107, who, sometime before his death, has founded the first castle at Framlingham. Right. So is that the key date of when Framlingham Castle sort of begins as a structure? Well, I couldn't give it the key date because we don't actually know precisely when, but it doesn't seem to have happened in 1086, and it certainly had happened uh, before Roger died in 1107. So sometime around 1100, I think, is probably the best guess about that. Right, so that's quite a big gap of a couple of decades then, really. But not uncommon, actually, Mm. Charles. I mean, the founding of castles is something that's going on quite steadily through the first generation or so of the Norman Conquest. And actually, I think there's an interesting piece of work to do more generally about when it happens. I think the idea that you build castles immediately on getting control of territory may not necessarily be true, that for several years, probably the first rank of Normans were actually just taking over and living in the houses and and manors of their Anglo-Saxon thanes that preceded them, Mm. and that actually only converting those things into castles is something that they do in a more considered way as the opportunity presents itself. Okay, so how more powerful did Roger Bigod become in the 1100s after the establishment of the castle in its earliest form? Well, probably not that much him. And much of the story that we're going to be talking about is actually the next generation after Roger I, particularly his son Hugh Bigod, who lives to a ripe old age. He doesn't die until 1177. So he's in charge for many decades. And his son, who confusingly is another Roger, who's going to take us into the 13th century, also lives to a ripe old age. I think both of them are are well into their 70s at the time when they die. So we've got a lot of time to get through. And let's sort of pass on to the next generation quite quickly. Roger's son and heir was William Bigod, breaking the cycle of Hughes and Rogers. But William, he's not in charge for a long time. He dies in 1120 in an infamous disaster that actually caused catastrophe for the ruling classes of Norman England. In 1120, William Bigod was one of the entourage of the heir to the throne, the son of King Henry I, on a vessel called the White Ship, which was sailing across the Channel. And possibly because the crew had had too much to drink or whatever, the white ship went down with all hands. This is a calamity for all the families, obviously, of people who were on the ship. But most obviously, it threw the succession into chaos because Henry I didn't have any other male heirs. So it actually sets the scene for a great deal of unrest in the middle 
decades of the 12th century, the first English civil war, if you like like to think about it, mm. which famously is between Henry I's female daughter, Matilda, or sometimes called Maud, the Empress Matilda, and a rival claimant, Stephen, who had actually, because he was male, had actually got the throne, but the control of England was contested between these two powerful people. And people like the big odds had to make a difficult choice as to who they were going to throw their weight behind. Now, the bigod in charge at that moment is Hugh Bigod, a younger son of Roger the First Bigod. Mm. He, at different times, had actually backed both claimants. He'd switched sides several times. I think it's fair to say that he wasn't cowed by King Stephen. For example, at one point in 1136, he had even attacked King Stephen's royal castle at Norwich, which is the biggest castle at that time in the whole of East Anglia. Or there was a moment when Stephen had fallen out with an Archbishop of Canterbury. This is a phenomenon that we're going to see again a little bit later. And uh, Hugh Bigod sided with the rebel Archbishop against the king. But at other moments, he decided that he would actually back Matilda. And it's unclear as to which of the claimants to the throne, Stephen or Matilda, was responsible for the biggest change to the life of the Big Odds in 1141, which is when Hugh, rather than just being sheriff of Norfolk, is made the Earl of Norfolk. So he becomes an aristocrat, and being an earl, that's the highest rank of aristocracy at that time. And one of the two of them makes Hugh the Earl of Norfolk. So he's now become a real top dog. He's now a toff. He's an aristocrat. And is that under King Stephen that he becomes Well, that? that's hard to say. It could be Matilda. It could be Stephen. I think the balance of historians' opinion is Stephen, but it's actually rather hard to say. And actually, what does seem to be the case is that both sides were prepared to acknowledge that Hugh Bigod had the correct title to the Earldom of Norfolk. Wow, that's fascinating. So that's one of the things that you sort of don't appreciate about history is that a lot of it is very, very nuanced. And this is quite murky indeed. But I think there's a big theme that comes out here about how total the control of the crown is over an area or over a group of people. And I think the message that we sort of get about all of this is that actually authority is endlessly contested. So at some points, it's in the interests of ambitious people like Hugh Bigod to side with the monarch. And at other times, he might think his best interests will be secured by going over to the other side. Of course, if you get this one wrong, and actually you end up backing the losing side, then there may be sad consequences for you. And that's something that we will see as we go through, even within the life of Hugh Bigod. So from a terrible maritime disaster, which resulted in no heirs being available, comes out this dynasty kind of war and this interaction between the royals and the nobles. The nobles who weren't even nobles until this point. It's fascinating. Uh, I I think, you know, everyone's forgetting who had come from nowhere. But I suppose, you know, being uh, having a a family name, Bigod, Yob or Boer, actually is always going to be a bit of a reminder that they didn't necessarily come out of the top drawer. But for time being, all that might be forgotten. They're a very, very powerful and rich family, and their power is particularly there in East Anglia and particularly in Suffolk. Now, it'd be quite useful, I think, at this moment just to set the scene. I mean, hopefully some people understand a little bit about Suffolk. It's actually quite a large county. It's to the south of Norfolk, and it's it's to the north of Essex and Cambridgeshire around there. 
And it's a beautiful county. I have to recommend it very strongly. And I know in these podcasts, people are going to get very bored with me saying, oh, this is one of my favourite sites. I do admit to having a lot of favourites. But actually to talk about Framlingham and Orford is always a bit of a pleasure. They're absolutely lovely sites to visit. Framlingham is inland. Orford, which we'll get to a little bit later, doesn't yet exist in our story, is actually on the coast. And The coastal area of Suffolk feels quite different in some ways to the rolling green countryside of of inland Suffolk around Framlingham. In the 12th century, though, Suffolk's quite an interesting political entity. First of all, there were large bits of Suffolk that weren't really up for grabs anyway for anyone in the Game of Thrones because they were the property of a couple of big religious houses of the Benedictine order. In inland Suffolk, someone we will know, in fact, the county administration of Suffolk is now from, some of it anyway, is from Bury St Edmunds, a very, very important and very historic city. And Bury St Edmunds grew up around a great Benedictine abbey, the abbey church in which St Edmund, King and Martyr, was buried. And Bury St Edmunds Abbey was endowed with a lot of territory. They basically owned an awful lot of western Suffolk. Further over towards the east, towards the coast... There were actually other big monastic estates belonging to Ely Abbey in Ely in Cambridgeshire. So all these figures like the big odds and like the royals are jockeying for position with a few bits that are in between. And Suffolk, it'd be going too far to say that it wasn't regarded as a county in its own right. It was a county in its own right. But they didn't actually have their own sheriff in charge. The sheriff of Norfolk based in Norwich Castle, was also the Sheriff of Suffolk, and he governed that whole large area in the King's name. So that suggests to me that there's a bit of a power vacuum in the area where the big odds are living in Framlingham. Um, Yes, I think that's exactly the way to think about it. And just as nature abhors a vacuum, so in politics... Families like the Bigods or like the Warrens, the Earls of Surrey, whom we sometimes encounter at other English heritage sites in East Anglia, such as Castle Acre, they you know, have an eye to the opportunities that they can grab, and they do grab them. So here's Hugh Bigod. He's actually played two sides during the Civil War fairly astutely, I think it's probably fair to say. And as time goes on after the Civil War, so through the 1150s and into the 1160s, His fortunes are doing quite well. However, at the moment, until 1154, it is Stephen who emerges victorious out of the Civil War. He remains on the throne and he doesn't want uh, Hugh Bigod to have all things his own way. Stephen has his own son, William of Blois, and he promotes him as a landowner, possibly in order to actually help put the bigods back in their place. So these two figures are sort of counterbalancing it out for control over parts of Suffolk. But I think as the 1150s go on, the bigods are doing pretty damn well. Their control over eastern Suffolk is sufficient that some writers could describe eastern Suffolk as the land of Hugh Bigods, so pretty much total control. The income that's coming from their estates is doing them quite well as well. So it's been calculated that by the mid-1160s, the Bigods have become the fifth richest family in England. Wow, that's a remarkable rise to power after coming over from, effectively, France um, and trying to carve out a new life for themselves, in a way. Yeah, in in half a century... Oh, sorry, I mean, 1166, of course, that's, that, that's exactly 100 years afterwards... 
two generations, that's what they've managed to do from being comparative nobodies. That is a quite remarkable rise to power. However, fate is waiting for them with the lead piping because in 1154, King Stephen's crown goes to the son of the Empress Matilda, who becomes King Henry II. Now, Henry II, we've encountered him in the podcast quite recently on my colleague Stephen Brindle's podcast about Great Tower at Dover and Thomas Beckett. He's yes. the king for the Thomas Beckett business. And that's going to play a bit of an offstage role in the story of the big odds. But, you know, as I hopefully people will have got from what Stephen was talking about, Henry II is a remarkable figure. He's very vigorous, very dynamic, very powerful. You know, he throws his full might into everything. And Henry wants to be king in every sense, not just in name, but he really wants to exert his authority over England. Hugh Bigod is among those who've helped Henry to the throne. But their relationship, I think, is never an easy one. And in particular, Henry II manages to get himself in a position where he can exploit the bit of a division of local power between the Hugh Bigod and William of Blois. And what he decides that he will do is he will get both of them to surrender all their castles to the king. So Hugh Bigod does that with Framlingham Castle and Henry II installs a pretty big garrison. I don't know exactly how many people, but it costs the king £16.18. shillings. So I think that's quite a lot of royal knights holding Framlingham Castle in the king's name. And Hugh Bigod presumably has to sit somewhere else kicking his heels. He only actually gets the castle back from the king in 1165. So that's been a bit of a setback for him. Yeah, that's it's only quite a temporary a... setback, but it's, it's quite quite a big one. For someone who's sort of risen through the ranks and achieved nobility status, uh, having come over from France, you know, in, in, a, in a couple of generations, he's suddenly being told what to do by the monarch. That must be quite frustrating. And um, It must be quite frustrating. And there isn't anyone else in the offing. This is not like Stephen and Matilda, where, you know, if you don't like what one of them is doing, you can go over side to the opposition. Side with one or the other, yeah. Um, Henry II is very, very powerful at this moment. So basically, Hugh Bigod has, has really got to accept this. However, he does get the castle back after he's paid a bit of money to the king. And it's possible that we got a slight trace at Framlingham of a bit of what Hugh actually did with it once he got the castle back. I was going to say, because when we met at Framlingham for the first time, we saw those very, very tall walls. Uh, are those the ones that exist from Hugh Bigod's time? Well, they don't exist from Hugh Bigod's time. They come a little bit later in our story, but... Those walls are not absolutely all that they are when you look at them. And if you stand inside the castle with your back to the one big building inside the castle, the workhouse building, the inner face of the curtain wall in front of you is actually really quite complicated. It's got the ghost of where there was a chapel there, but it's also got the ghost of another building. And what it looks like is that both the chapel and the other building were already standing there and that the curtain wall was sort of built against the back of them and wrapped around them. And in as much as we can say anything from what's really only very limited architectural fragments, 
the buildings at Framlingham do seem to be really quite posh. Certainly the building that's next to the chapel is a building of two stories. It had a sloping roof, the ghost of the pitch of the roof. You can actually see in the mortar of the inner face of the wall. It had two stories with quite fine fireplaces, one serving the ground floor, one serving the upper floor, made of quite beautifully dressed Barnack stone. It had windows looking out into the parkland, and I think it's quite likely that what you've got there is the chamber block in which Hugh Bigod and his nearest and dearest actually lived something approaching a luxury life. That's the building where on the first floor they would have slept, they probably would have kept some of their most precious possessions in there, they would have relaxed listening to music and poetry and other things. And inasmuch as 12th century buildings ever get to be luxurious and comfortable, this is pretty luxurious and comfortable. And we've certainly got at least the ghost of something like that at Framlingham Castle from what I'm pretty happy with from a few architectural traces is from the third quarter of the the 12th century, so Hugh Bigod's time. We've established then the development of the Bigod family in Suffolk, the influence of the king, Henry II, and his exertion of influence on the Bigods and on Framlingham. So what then happens in the story? Because, well, obviously we need to talk about two castles here. When does Orford Castle get built? Well, this is the moment when Orford Castle comes into our story. The king strikes back, if you like. Having given Framlingham and other castles back to Hugh on payment of a fine in 1165, I think Henry thinks, hang on, I run the risk now of making Hugh Bigod into pretty much almost king in all but name in Suffolk. And so at this moment we get the construction from scratch of a royal castle, the first royal castle in Suffolk, in the town of Orford, which already existed. It was a port on the coast, probably something like 15 to 20 miles away to the east of Framlingham. And we know quite a lot about the new Orford Castle for two reasons. First of all, one wonderful building survives there, the Great Tower in the centre, which is a truly extraordinary structure. And it's come to us near as damn it in the condition in which it was built. We can certainly see exactly what Henry II was getting. But also, for the first time, I believe, in history, we've got documentation surviving for the construction of the whole of a castle, these wonderful documents called the pipe rolls, which describe expenditure between 1165 and 1175, with the biggest expenditure in the first four years. The two things together are a remarkable source, the architecture and the documentation. So how can we describe Orford Castle? We've talked about the um, solitary tower, which still exists, but I presume around that there was some sort of curtain wall and other buildings inside? Yeah, there was. I mean, first of all, it's just worth stressing that the tower and the curtain wall were built as a single unified entity within the same operation, and there was a ditch around the outside of that, a dry ditch probably, with a stone causeway running against it. Sadly, the outer curtain wall doesn't stand above ground level. There are a few archaeological traces of it down below, and actually a survey of earthworks actually shows very clearly where it stood. And mercifully, there's a rather lovely picture of it when the castle was intact, made by the topographical artist John Norden in about 1600. The curtain wall was sort of teardrop-shaped, but it formed a complete circuit, and it had six towers plus a gatehouse, at intervals, the towers were rectangular. They wrapped in quite tightly around the surviving building, the Great Tower in the middle. And the Great Tower comes as a bit of a surprise in architecture because 
It's worth saying, I mean, it's built at exactly the same time as the same patron, Henry II, is building a great tower at Dover Castle, as Stephen Brindle was talking about a few weeks ago. And that tower is square or rectangular with square turrets on each corner. Orford Castle is completely different. It's almost space age in its complexity. It is actually based around almost a cylindrical plan, but it has external facets and then three rectangular towers projecting from that. And internally, I mean, is the most amazing structure and you've really got to take your time to explore that, as well as the main central spaces where it's got a basement and a, a lower hall and then what we sometimes call the upper hall, but it was probably actually the chamber occupying the whole of the sort of central volume and they're circular in plan internally. But within the turrets that projected from that, there's all sorts of very exciting and quite mysterious little spaces reached by secret passages and strange narrow spiral staircases going up. It's absolutely a wonderful place to explore and you can well imagine the drama of court life and particularly the servants of the king or the servants of the sheriff actually bustling about doing their business inside Orford Castle and it really looks pretty much as it would have done in the 12th century. It sounds like a very complicated structure that main central tower and also potentially very highly designed and also highly expensive. Do these pipe rolls reveal, these documents reveal how much it would have cost? Yeah, it would have cost £1,400. That is quite a lot of money in the 12th century for the thing to be built from scratch, but built to, built to high standards. I think, I mean, one word that you could use for Orford is exotic. It's great pity that we haven't got the curtain wall surviving, because if we had the curtain wall, we might well be able to see whether actually the king's purpose was to produce a great military emplacement. And it's entirely possible that if the curtain wall still survived, we'd see within its turrets arrow slits for crossbowmen to be to be defending the castle. Mm. The inner building, the Great Tower, doesn't really look like that. It's got battlements at the top, and doubtless people could stand up there and, and you know shoot a, some distance, and certainly you could see a long distance. But thereafter, it's you know rather difficult to make out and an architectural historian who looked at it a few years ago felt that actually it's entirely possible that the influences on this castle, whose geometry is very complex, very sophisticated, actually could even be travellers' tales from people that had been to see the Byzantine emperor at Constantinople and visited his wonderful throne room with a domed ceiling and with three niches and had created something not dissimilar, because certainly the upper chamber seems to have had a wooden domed ceiling and these other towers leading off from it with other rooms to one side. Mm. Just remind us when this went up and how long it took to build Orford Castle. Well, as I said, it was started in 1165 and it was finished about 1175. As it happens, just in time, because for 1173 and 1174... Henry II faced a quite important rebellion in which the bigods actually played a role. So that's when it was, and it was probably finished just in time for that. And just before that rebellion, how were the bigods feeling at this point? Because it sounds as though that they were very much sort of put on the back foot by this very lavish and expensive and extremely well-designed and defensive fortification. They must have felt a bit threatened. Well, yeah, I think they probably must have watched this going up with, uh, you know, with, with some alarm. But remember, there's other things going on of which they were aware. So off stage, 1170 is quite a big year because 1170 is the year when 
the long brewing conflict between Henry II and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, who'd been off in exile, came to a head when Becket came back from exile and was murdered, almost certainly on Henry's implicit orders in Canterbury Cathedral. So, you know, Henry II, while still a powerful man, is also something of a political pariah. And in 1173, uh, he, Henry II is attacked by his own family. His sons, Henry the Young King and Richard, the future Richard the Lionheart, encouraged by their mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Queen of England, but estranged from Henry II, and with support from the kings of France and Scotland and rebel barons, including Hugh Bigod. Hugh Bigod threw his lot in with the rebels in 1173, presumably feeling that this was a good moment while Henry II was being attacked by foreign kings and by other members of, of, of his family for Hugh to get something out of it. And Hugh seems to have made an arrangement with Henry's son in rebellion that the young king would give Henry the hereditary constableship of Norwich Castle and an estate, the honour of I, in Suffolk, which would have completely overturned the authority of King Henry II in the area. So Hugh decides, OK, I'm going to throw in my lot with the rebels. He joins forces with a rebel leader, the Earl of Leicester, who has come and invaded into East Anglia with Flemish mercenaries. And so far, you know, things are looking good for Hugh Bigod, looking quite quite bad for Henry II. However, not for long, the barons fall out rather badly. And this is one of the few moments when a woman actually plays an important role in the story. Hugh's wife decides that she hates the Earl of Leicester. And part of the consequence of this is that Henry II is victorious. One of the chroniclers, Rafe of Dis says the Earl of Leicester returned to Framlingham, but his stay there seemed a burden to the castle's Lord Hugh Bigod and completely detestable to Hugh's wife, and they therefore were forced to drive him out, and he turned his attention to making towards Leicester. And the Earl of Leicester, heading back towards the city of Leicester, is intercepted before he's gone very far by a royalist army near Bury St Edmunds on the 17th of October in 1173 and is roundly beaten. So Henry II comes back into ascendancy. The war isn't quite over yet. Hugh still is trying to gather supporters, but he can't supply them. So he makes a truce with the king until Whitson in the spring of 1174. Then he takes to the field again. He sacks Norwich on June the 18th, but the royal forces are too great for him. He won't be able to hold on to everything. And on the 25th of July, Hugh Bigod decides the game's up. He submits to Henry II. He pays him a thousand marks, £666. So, you know, nearly half of what it cost Henry II to build Orford Castle. And importantly, he surrenders his castles to the king. What is Henry II going to do? Henry II is going to take his revenge. And once again, it's the pipe rolls that give us the detail about all of this. The pipe roll for 1174 says... 14 pounds, 15 shillings and 11 pence are allowed to his royal servant, Aylnoth the engineer, and the carpenters and masons that he has brought with him to take down Framlingham Castle on the writ of the Justicer of England viewed by the Sheriff of Essex. Oh, and no. <laughs> item 36 shillings and 1 pence for levelling the ditch at the same castle. So in retaliation for having played a part in the rebellion, Henry II has Framlingham Castle taken down by his own men. 
That's terrible if you're Hugh Bigod, because at one stage you were a tenant of your own property, and you had to hand, over, hand it over to the king, then buy it back from him, and now he's destroying it. I mean, it, you know, it certainly has resonances of a later civil war, the civil war in the 17th century, when, you know, the victorious parliamentarians, they have a number of castles, what's called slighted, you know, they're made indefensible. And mm. I'm sure it's the same in the 12th century. Part of this is a practical matter that you just want to make sure that these military emplacement cannot be used against you uh, mm-hmm. again. But there's also must be a sort of powerful symbolism of this, that actually castles are not just useful emplacements, they are badges of rank. They are symbols of the authority and the high standing of an aristocratic family. So actually, it's a very emasculating thing, if you're Hugh Bigod, to have the victorious king take your castle down. Now, what taking the castle down means, actually, it's difficult for us to say. I mean, first of all, I think much of that castle must have been built of timber, so it's going to be taking down you know, some of the timber palisades around the outside. There must have been towers of some kind. If there was a mot, I mean, we don't know this, but it might have been a mot and bailey castle, I think the works to level the ditches may also be you know, taking down earthworks of that kind. Right. But, as I've suggested, looking at the castle now, there seem to be some survivals of 12th century fabrics, so it could be that actually certain of the residential buildings were left standing. And one has to imagine that Henry II actually placed some of his own people to live in them. How long did Hugh have to put up with this before time caught up with him and and, and he breathed his last breath? Yeah, well, he hasn't got very long to live now. Hugh actually had managed to retain his earldom. He'd still got that, but he'd lost his castle and he's definitely in disgrace. It's not looking good for him. He goes off on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and it's while on pilgrimage there that he dies in 1177. So he's now out of the story, and we pass on to the next generation, who confusingly is another Roger. This is Roger II. Now, Roger II, big odd, had actually been against his father. He'd sided with Henry II during the rebellion, (laughs) but... So he might have thought, okay, well, you know, I'm about to get my reward and it's all going to be absolutely fine. No, not really. Unfortunately, Henry II has decided that the sins of the fathers will pass on to his sons. And in particular, he doesn't want to make the mistake of allowing the big old family to rise from the ashes too quickly. So he doesn't return the castle. In fact, for the rest of Henry II's life, Roger is really not a particularly significant figure. And Rather annoyingly, he's also in dispute with his own stepmother, who's trying to ease him out in favour of her of her own son. So Roger II thinks he's going to inherit the earldom in quite tricky circumstances. Henry II, you know, could confirm him in the title of his father, and he doesn't do it. And in fact, it's only when Henry II dies in 1189, and Henry II's son, Richard takes over, becomes King Richard I, Richard the Lionheart is his later name. He becomes king. And that's going to be an interesting moment for a hell of a lot of former courtiers, former noblemen, but particularly people that have been involved in actions against Henry II. What's the new king going to do? And in this instance, King Richard actually decides that he will give Roger II his father's title. So he allows him to be the Earl of Norfolk again. And he gives him back the castle. So once again, Roger has the title and he's got the castle. And it's at this moment that 
I think, feeling that his fortunes are in the ascendancy, he builds the Framlingham Castle that we know and love. In the early years of King Richard I, in the, 12, in the 1190s, he builds the amazing walls around Framlingham Castle, which, of course, survive almost intact now. Yes, it is. It's it's beautiful, the sort of um, yellowish sort of stone, isn't it? But um, and, and they rise so high into the air. I, I can't remember the exact figure of feet, but um, they are very, very tall. I mean, I think they're going to be something like 60, 70, 80 feet, something like that. I mean, the yeah. walk itself is very, very high. And, you know, interesting, it's the same kind of design as the lost curtain wall at Orford Castle, but much, much bigger and it's still one of the most impressive bits of fortification of the 12th century. It's still definitely one of the go-to sites. Talking about the new design of castles that once upon a time, even as recently as Orford Castle and Dover, you know, you had a great tower in the centre. But Framlingham, as far as we know, has never had that. It's the circuit of the perimeter defences, the great curtain wall around the outside, that becomes the key point in the design of the castle. So it's under Richard I, also known as Richard the Lionheart, that Roger Bigod II, son of Hugh, sided with Henry II, the previous king, has restored the family honour and Framlingham Castle and fortified it effectively. Yes, that's right. But of course, the way that this story goes, it's not going to last. So (laughs) through Richard the Lionheart's reign, you remember Richard has gone off on crusade and all that lot. Roger is a loyal and useful man, you know, helping to keep his bit of England on side. And initially, Roger is on pretty good terms with Richard's brother, John, who becomes king on Richard's death. However, it's all going to go horribly wrong. And, you know, as you know... John was the most is, hated you know, king he's pretty in bad. history. I mean, I, I know that, yeah. that recently, I mean, some very eminent and credible historians have been interested in trying to rehabilitate John. But I think it's fair to say John's relations with his baronage, you know, generally pretty bad. And with Roger Bigod, just as much. I mean, he taxes Roger very harshly. Roger gets involved in a lawsuit And John, you know, could be offering him good lordship, but he doesn't. He sides with the opposition. So Roger decides, okay, he's not going to get anything out of King John. When Magna Carta comes along, you know, which is the great charter by which the authority of the king is actually placed under under certain designated limits and conditions, Roger II and his son, Hugh II, are the first two names in the list of barons who enforce John to assent to Magna Carta, for which, by the way, they are excommunicated by the Pope, but I don't think it seems to do them any any great harm. And John is not going to forget this in a hurry, that they are leaders in the barons who have humiliated him and forced him to accept that royal power has limitations. Yes. So in the war that is inevitably coming, they are going to play a part and they're not going to be on the same side as John. Yes, and John, I believe, he wasn't, his heart wasn't really in it when he put his quill to the parchment, was it? One of those questions we always get asked, you know, where did John sign Magna Carta? And the answer is he didn't sign Magna Carta, he put his seal on Magna Carta. I don't think John's pen goes anywhere near the document, but he had agreed to it, as you say, with a very, very uh, heavy heart. And anything that he could do afterwards to get out of it, he definitely does. So war comes along. And this is a war that is, you know, does include a number of sieges. And this some is the first Barons' know, War, isn't it? This is well, I, that, that's what I, I that's what I and, and some other people call it. Some other people call it the War of Magna Carta. Right. And a quite famous siege, for example, takes place in the autumn of twelve fifteen. 
at Rochester Castle. And, you know, that was a hideous siege. I mean, it, was, it, it, it went on a very long time. It was very expensive, very destructive. It actually saw the destruction of quite a lot of the castle for John to win, which he did win. And afterwards, a chronicler said, from now on, few put their trust in castles. So it's a reminder that sieges actually, you know, no one particularly likes having sieges. That's all going to be pretty bad stuff. And a siege of Framlingham duly does come along. One of the royal officers leads an army to reduce East Anglia early in spring 1216. And John himself marches down from the north. He buys off some of Roger's supporters after he's captured them. He promises that he will return their land and they say, OK, I'm now going to switch over to John. And in March 1216, John besieges Framlingham Castle. It doesn't actually seem to be a particularly destructive siege. I think they'd learnt the lessons after Rochester and they wanted it to be, oh, both sides probably wanted it to be over really quite quickly. So looking at, at some of the documentation and particularly looking at, at some of the royal writs, which always say this is written in the presence of this person at this place at this date, we can actually see how John is moving around. And John seems only to have been at Framlingham on two days, only on the 12th and 13th of March 1216 and the castle almost certainly surrenders on the same day with a failure of rebel morale. Certainly the experience of having watched what had happened to Rochester and other places probably taught them, made them think that John's army was professional and effective in besieging castles and it was. Was Roger Bigod there whilst it was being besieged by King John's army? I think he was, actually. But you know what? That is something I'm not entirely certain about. But certainly it's, it's, it's certainly whoever was there, I think, felt that the, the jig was up. They would make terms as quickly as they possibly could. And John, I think, probably, you know, having felt, OK, you know, he hadn't been put to a lot of difficulty and ex- expense, was forgiving is probably not really the right term, but he wasn't as vindictive as he was in some other places where, he, you know, he threatens to kill everyone involved. Actually, he issues pardons to the constable called William Lenvis and 26 knights, 20 sergeants, seven crossbowmen, a chaplain and three others, which is almost certainly the complete war garrison that are there. He places his own constable, Elias de Beecham, in charge. But actually, the loss of the castle is only is really only very temporary. And Roger, from this moment, having retired from public life, increasingly becomes an elder statesman, particularly, you know, remember, John hasn't got very long to go. And his son, Henry III, comes to depend on figures such as Roger or William Marshall that, that from the last generation. And when he dies in 1221, anniversary this year, mm-hmm. about 78 years old, he's a respected elder statesman. His son has made a very advantageous marriage. So he may well, on his deathbed, have looked back and seen, well, my life, my career had had ups and downs. But when he died, he was in full possession of his title. He was in full possession of his castles. And he had left a very good basis for his descendants to go on through the 13th century. So it was only through Henry III's accession to the throne that Roger Bigod, at his death in 1221, had actually got back Framlingham Castle. Yes, but many other things besides. And I think his having sided against the king doesn't seem to have done him any harm in this instance. And, you know, rather interestingly, I mean, this is where our podcast stops telling the story. 
But, you know, if you look on a little bit further, I started this podcast talking about the story of Roger the Fourth Bigod and telling Edward the First that he wasn't going to go to war in Gascony. And the tradition of speaking truth to power and telling the royals things that they didn't really want to hear does seem to be something of a family trait. Another Bigod does this to Henry the Third as well, where Henry the Third tries to cow him and say, you know, I will send my own men into your estates and thresh the, you know, thresh your corn if you won't give me what I want. And the bigod says says to him, you know, anyone who comes onto my land and threshes the corn will come back without their hands. Um, you know, <laughs> wow. they're pretty fearless about all of this. That does seem to be, you know, something of a family trait. So bigod by name, bigod by nature, and they've managed to survive all the way through these generations, challenging power and holding on to their castles. They do, and what, of course, that story has bequeathed us, you know, quite a complicated story, is, you know, two of the most informative castles of the 12th century, quite close in the same part of the world, but representing the authority of the two different sides, Orford representing the authority of the royals, and their cultural aspirations, the fact that they wanted a very luxurious and exotic, you know, life as, as, as well as a strong one. And the great powerhouse of Framlingham Castle, which, of course, you know, goes on to become, you know, a powerhouse, you know, through the Middle Ages. And, you know, I think uh, the first time, Charles, that you and I uh, did a podcast together at mm. Framlingham, we were talking about an event several centuries in the future where it's at Framlingham that Mary Tudor actually realises that she's strong enough to become the Queen of England. Well, that was against a backdrop of 12th century fortification, castle building. It was uh, Hugh Bigod and his son Roger Bigod II uh, that had created. Yes, and I think um, as we look at those two properties separately today, you can even visit them perhaps on the same day. Uh, I, I think you so should close. visit them on the same day, and there are great similarities as well as great, great contrasts. And by the way, I think it makes it, uh, you know, particularly on if the weather is good, it makes an absolutely fantastic day out of castle visiting. And I think, you know, if you see both of them and then you've got them both in, in your mind's eye after you've visited, you'll get a really good sense of uh, how this fantastic, bloody... <laughs> complicated sides changing all the time history played out i think it they're two amazing ruins really to a fantastic story yes they are and i think there are stories you know of similar interest and complexity all the way across the country but i do think that the story of framingham norford has something particular to tell us You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to look at the remarkable life of Eleanor of Castile, the Spanish princess who became an English queen. I think we can safely say that it wasn't initially down to love. We, if you like, get a pretty good deal sorting out the diplomatic situation in Gascony, and we have a useful ally just in case things turn badly in France. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>